My journey has been one of returning from the darkness and stepping out into the light once more. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logos and Trivial. While you're sitting trying to figure that out, this is my podcast. Allegedly. Logos and Trivial podcast. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logos and Trivial. Maybe you're also Logos and Trivial. While you're sitting there trying to figure out what that even means, uh, let me introduce today's special guest. I have with me the man, the myth, the uh, nuclear powerhouse, Mark Schneider. This is a man who I have actually paid attention to for quite some time on Twitter because I'm very interested in nuclear power. Uh, and I'll, I'll be up front with you, the viewers and listeners. I'm into it big time. I, it's, to me, it makes so little sense why this is not a, at the forefront of our energy supply um, unless you look at it outside of the sort of realm of logic and, and you allow <laughs> politics and culture and things to, but we'll, I guess we'll get into some of that. But Mark is a guy expert, knows his way around the subject big time. Uh, you, some of you might've tuned into the podcast he just did with, uh, Adam Townsend. They got into some of the, uh, geopolitical ramifications of the subject and some of the investment ramifications of the subject. And. Um, we're going to have a little bit of a different, different spin on it tonight, but uh, Mark, I, I guess it would be better for you to just kind of jump in at this point and, and fill in a little bit more about who you are, what you do, so that we can uh, we can get this show on the road. Yeah, absolutely, Chance. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great honor to be on here. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, so it's it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, so you have a little background on me. Uh, I've basically grew up in the nuclear industry, and I'm a man of few hobbies. So uh, not only have I worked in the industry since I was 18 years old, um, in my spare time, I advocate for nuclear. And I'm such a man of few hobbies that, uh, that my wife is a nuclear engineer as well. So we have the nerdiest pillow talk on the planet. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but uh, it, it kind of a little background myself. I did 20 years in the Navy as a nuclear power plant operator. I served on three submarines, an aircraft carrier. And then I uh, retired, started working in the commercial industry. And then about a year ago, I started advocating for uh, nuclear energy. Um, and it kind of all thrust to my lap because of uh, a tweet thread that I made with uh, with Scott Adams uh, back in February of last year. But uh, so I think from there, I'll let you ask me the questions that I can respond because that's usually the best way I've seen this go. Hmm. Scott Adams is a smart guy. I had him in on the podcast and he's a very gracious guest as well. He's, he's a cool dude. But uh, I guess I wonder... And maybe that was the event, but I guess I wonder what is it about you that um, sort of informed your your mentality or your spirit that you needed to step forward and be the guy who was going to open his mouth and say what needed to be said about the nuclear industry. So I have a good friend, Megan. She uh, was in the Navy as a nuclear operator as well. And the way she describes it is that when you look at nuclear engineers, you know, they're very much introverts. And the way you could tell a nuclear engineer that's an introvert versus an extrovert, the extrovert's looking at your shoes instead of his own because they can't <laughs> even make eye contact. So, um, I, and I, I, I'm, you know, the ability to, to, to form a coherent sentence that most people can understand is actually something that, that my industry struggles with. Communication is probably the biggest thing that we are bad at. So, yeah, that's where, where I come into it is I have a different skill set than a lot of my, my fellow nuclear uh, advocates or you know, even just general engineers or, you know, uh, experts understand. Hmm. That's probably uh, 
maybe a failure of communication is one of the reasons that people, uh, many people out there have such a sort of a, like a, a nervousness or a, a hesitancy about the nuclear industry in general. Um, and, you know, we've had, we've had uh, some issues over the years that probably have gotten blown out of proportion as far as the ramifications and the ill effects and, and what it means for the industry in general. And I guess I wonder, let's start off with the doozy here, uh, because I'm sure this is at the front of everybody's mind, which is where do you suppose uh, maybe the confusion between using nuclear energy as a power source versus using nuclear energy as a weapon source uh, comes from and, and how can we maybe clear up some of the misconceptions about what's going on in that uh, sort of disconnect? A lot of it is overlap of words and then poor word selection. And I, I'm going to go with this communications theme. So, and, and we'll, we'll maybe be able to reverse roles here a little bit and ask you a question. If I told you that a nuclear reactor was critical, what does that make you think? Hmm. Well, there are two parts of me that think about it. Um, <laughs> little uh, little salute to Adam there. I appreciate you joining us, Adam. There's two there's two parts of me. There's the uh, there's the sort of oh China syndrome <laughs> yeah. kind of side, and then there's the side that uh, thinks well we got a we got a temperature issue, I, I suppose. All right. So in the world of nuclear being critical, it means that it is producing as many neutrons per generation cycle than it needs. So it's a stable reactor. Hmm. So you 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 had two definitions that seemed scary. And the def the actual definition of critical means that the reactor is stable. <laughs> so we don't use words very well. And then, you know, when you look at where, you know, when you you use nuclear and you know you have the weapons association it uses the same materials but a completely different way and the word critical in weapons is a completely different word it it's you know you have to you have a critical mass and you have to have sufficient mass to cause a chain reaction and so here we use the word critical to describe what you need to have an explosion in nuclear weapons but in a nuclear reactor critical means that it's a stable reaction so you know, even in our own industry, we use words poorly. So that's a, a mm. prime example of it. And, you know, then again, going back to the association with nuclear weapons, and, you know, you we, we see the explosions that occur, that have occurred, and, you know, we're going to go, I'm going to jump right into the into the accidents, because that's a key thing, right? When you look at the, the Chernobyl, the Fukushima, and your viewers probably don't know about SL1, but that was a reactor out in Idaho that, that underwent an explosion, you know, we see the weapons and we ever once associate that as a nuclear explosion, all the reactors that have exploded were not were non-nuclear explosions. And they were hmm. related to their choice of coolant, which is water in the three reactors that did explode, or the well, technically five reactors exploded, three at Fukushima and then uh, SL1 and Chernobyl. And SL1 and Chernobyl, they had what's called an overpowered amendment, they basically got too much power generating at once. And much like if you took a, a, a baby food jar of water, a little bit of water in there and you stuck it on a, on a stove and you heat it up, it would explode, right? Same type of thing happens. If you get too much you know, heat rapidly, the reactor pressure vessel can't keep it. And so basically can't contain it. And so that's what those explosions were. Hmm. And so you switch away from water, you start, you, you get rid of that, that concern. At uh, uh, Fukushima, uh, the 
the temperature got so high that the the fuel itself has a, 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 a an element called zirconium around it. It's a metal that holds the fuel in place. And when it's in the presence of water at really high temperatures, it rapidly oxidizes and releases hydrogen gas. And so that hydrogen gas is being vented out into the reactor buildings, not the containments. The containments did their job and kept the reactor and you know, kept everything inside of it, but they're releasing this hydrogen gas. Well, hydrogen gas is highly flammable. And that's those explosions where it was hydrogen explosions and or steam explosions. Hmm. I guess the obvious question for me right there is, well, why would you use zirconium in a situation like that then? Was it? Um, it's, it, it's highly corrosion resistant. And mm -hmm. now, now the new fuels that are being tested, there's four plants in the U.S. that are testing the fuel. The Russian company, Rosatom, has several reactors. They're testing uh, accident-tolerant fuels that basically have a coating around that so that you're not in contact with zirconium. So that in the event that you would have, you know, if we had a Fukushima level event at another reactor that the you would not have that ever occur that you wouldn't generate the hydrogen gas okay so um i guess i i would maybe just kick it back to you again and ask well what are the other things about weapons or proliferation that um you see is commonly tied to nuclear power that maybe should not be or or misconceptions that you can help us clear up before we kind of dig into some other topics. So one of the things that's a major misconception is, is that every reactor pr can produce nuclear weapons materials. And that's a huge misconception that you actually have to design a reactor to make weapons materials, specifically plutonium, right? So, cause uh, you have to have a certain grade of plutonium, which is pl pure plutonium 239, has to be greater than 90% plutonium 239. If you put, if you have a reactor that operates in that, it's called a neutron flux for too long, you start generating plutonium 240. And if you have, uh, you get a, a reactor that operates for greater than six months with fuel in it, you generate some plutonium 239 it, but with it is plutonium 240. That blend makes it to where you can't make bombs with it. So you can't make a weapon. So, you know, one of the major, major misconceptions is we have all the spent nuclear material, uh, the spent fuel, if you will, that's at all these sites. Well, and people think you can just take that out there and just build a bomb. Thank you, James Bond, for you know screwing that up for us back in 1999. Um, you know, with the, the I can't remember which one it was. It was with um, I guess Tomorrow Never Dies. I'm like one of the ones with Pierce Brosnan. But literally, you know, they they made this misconception that I can randomly take a fuel assembly from you know something put it in a submarine reactor like it just it took it was it was more science fiction and the only thing true about it was that there are nuclear reactors on submarine after beyond that pure science pure fantasy hmm. so we, we we fight with the media um and so that's you know with talk of the weapons proliferation that's one of the big things uh you know that we can generate it or the other is that um you know, they're going to make dirty bombs from this material. Uh, if you go to a, a, a nuclear site with the with the spent fuel, like that stuff is 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 held under security. Uh, they're in containers that are difficult to. You have to have special equipment to move them. You have to know what you're doing with it, or else you're going to kill your 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 bomb manufacturers. If you wanted to go and obtain material as a terrorist, right? That's that's the other one I get. Terrorists, well, terrorists, they're going to obtain this and build dirty bombs. 
every nation on the planet has a cancer ward that does radiation treatment. They use high radiation sources that you could get to produce said dirty bomb from hospital much easier. You wouldn't need to, you know, it's they're they're portable, meaning that, you know, they're about the size of a briefcase and you can carry around um, or shipyards. That's the other thing. So we use, you know, radioactive source for different things. It would be easier to to make a, a bomb from. And so the, the the claim of, well, they could do you know, the terrorists would would attack a, a, a nuclear site for that is just it's it's fantasy again, because everyone's watched Die Hard way too many times. Right. You know, again, we, again, we use we use movies. Oh, and Bruce Willis has a movie coming out. It's going to talk about that. And I'm like, well, this is dumb. Um, that's that's the whole premise of the movie they're going to have. Um, so, yeah. So I deal with that. And then the other thing is, is that nuclear sites around the world are armed like to the teeth, you know, and I'm not talking just, you know, yeah, the the guards walk around with M4s like that's what they walk around with. They also have 50 cal machine guns like at these nuclear sites, the largest department at any nuclear power plant is security. So no, no one is gonna go and, and take over a, a nuclear reactor um, for this. Oh, and by the way, the second you did that, you would you would deploy, you know, you would de- uh, your, your local military would deploy to assist the nuclear power plant. Like it wouldn't take much to, to, to deploy a quick reaction force. And, you know, you have to get into, you know, these areas that have security badges and things like that. You know, even access to the plant itself requires you get turnstiles. You have to you would have to physically break down. Yeah, you have use uh, your fingerprint data to access. So like just the whole access thing, you know, it's, it's not easy to get through. OK, so for certain. Uh... For certain, beyond the the weapons prolif- pro- boy, I'm having a hard time saying that word today. Proliferation <laughs> issue. The other uh, certainly most common pushback that I have encountered when I talk to people about nuclear energy is the meltdown situation, um, and I think a lot of people have misconceptions about what that really looks like. Uh, like I mentioned, China syndrome at the at the top of the conversation here, uh, but you know, people seem to think that there's going to be some situation where this nuclear sludge melts through the center of the earth, and or or that it's a uh, you know it's going to end up looking like a giant nuclear explosion when the plant um, goes goes critical. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bring it back full circle. So yeah. I guess um, I'd like you to address maybe what what it really looks like and then what steps uh, have been taken thus far and then sort of moving into the future to help prevent the 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 true scenario from taking place or to minimize the damage should it occur all right so you you know there's a lot in there but we can package it all up so um you started with the china syndrome which is a great discussion point so the china syndrome came out in 1979 12 days before the three mile and meltdown accident. So again, using that media thing, right? There's a hype and, and, and Adam and I talked about this yesterday about the mythology that exists in the US over, over because of that, right? Three mile and we, we destroyed a reactor and the surrounding population received about one dental x-rays worth of radiation. That's it, right? No plant workers died. No one died because of three mile. 
right? If you look at all the accidents, there were eight large-scale commercial accidents, and then there were several test reactors, right? Just like when you, you're testing things at the beginning, you have a lot of problems. So, you know, we're talking the 50s and 60s with the test reactors. We melted down a bunch of them. Um, we figured out a lot of, you know, fixed a lot of the problems with that. So when I say eight, when I say eight meltdowns, Fukushima counts for three, hmm. right? So we built the three reactors down in Fukushima and blew up four. <laughs> so their, their units were operating in pairs. That's why, that's why we blew up four. Killed zero people. The only people that died was there was a fear from the government at which they, um, uh, they evacuated in a hasty manner and 1,200 people were you know, killed because they were in life support situations. And so they were rushing them out of these hospitals when they probably could have stopped. Let's wait a moment. You know, yes, the, the, the people may get some radiation exposure, but it's, that would be better than death, right? And it's, we're talking small quantities. It would have been less than you know, things that I've gotten as an operator in a day. So, and I'm not worried about, you know, developing cancer from my radiation exposure. Like it does, it's not a fear of mine, right? I'm not afraid of that. I go into radiation fields all the time, you know, and have in, you know, my past, and it doesn't bother me. Like I'm not worried about getting getting cancer or radiation sickness. So there's a lot of fear from that aspect. Um, so that's, you know, it's here. So we've got those three, three mile and Chernobyl. Chernobyl killed 31 people, terrible accident, flawed design, right? Flawed test without a containment structure. If you took the, uh, the RBMK was this, the type of reactor and you put it in a US containment, the reactor would have expended that exact same test. The reactor would have exploded, but it would have been contained inside the containment. That's the purpose of it. So I would call it a containment. So it wouldn't have had that release, probably wouldn't have killed anyone. You would have had to do a major cleanup. You may have had to build some, you wouldn't have had to build the sarcophagus that they have, the two sarcophagi, I guess, at this point. The initial one built in the eighties and the one that went in a couple of years ago. So that's, you know, one aspect is, is that, you know, we already have other, you know, systems in place to prevent that. Every reactor on the planet has a containment structure except the four operating RBMKs that Russia operates still. So just from that aspect. Um, now they'll never run a test like that again. And and I would say that if they tried to intentionally do what they did, they couldn't have made it happen. It required, you know, a lot of stupidity and arrogance and, you know, um, you know, or luck, if you will, to cause that in a form of bad luck. Um, mm. So I don't think they could have ever intentionally done that because they violated their safety protocols. And they just, it's a, it's terrible what they did. Um, and so that's, uh, so now we're up to five or five of them. There were two accidents in France at the same unit where they basically had overheated some fuel fused two fuel assemblies together, and that was done. And there was an eighth Russian commercial power plant that had a partial meltdown. And those three reactors, uh, those those three accidents, those reactors are still operating today. Hmm. So, you know, yes, we've destroyed five reactors, well, six technically with three meltdowns and the fourth explosion. And then the remaining three, we, those reactors are still operating. And if you go back and you look at previous accidents from the test reactors, most of those reactors, they melted, they had a meltdown, they pulled the fuel out, put new fuel in and operate them again for, you know, oftentimes decades. So, you know, we have this misconception of a meltdown, meaning an explosion and a destruction of a reactor, when really what a meltdown means is that the fuel itself is melted. 
And I would argue to say that we probably could have repaired the Three Mile Island Unit 2 that had the meltdown and could have operated it for 40 years safely. And now that's the first half of your question. The second half is what have we done in place of that? So I could speak very much to the United States, right? If we had had a tsunami event that had occurred uh, like in Fukushima 2011, back in the 90s, the US installed in all their plants what's called a, a station blackout diesel generator, specifically designed around a flooding event, hmm. such that if that, you know, we had washed out our safety systems that are in the basement of the containment, which is done for, you know, the purposes of a 200, you know, a telephone pole traveling at 200 miles an hour, you know, it'll survive that. That's why they're, that's why they put these things down low is so that they can survive tornadoes and hurricanes and things like that. So they have another diesel that's outside of that such that they could power. Now it's not under missile hardening. So if you had a tsunami that would flood it out, you could then provide external electrical power to ensure that you could keep, you know, your cooling systems in place to prevent a Fukushima event. So that was done before Fukushima. So if we had Fukushima, a, a similar situation to that in the US, we could have prevented that in 2011. Post Fukushima accident, they did, the United States and other nations have developed a program called the BDB Flex Program. BDB stands for Beyond Design Bases. So now in a hardened structure on the, on the site, you have a bunch of diesel driven equipment for lighting, for electrical generation, pumps, things like that. That, and you know, there's tractors and communications equipment, all this stuff. So that if we were to lose all our power, including that new diesel that was installed in the 90s, including the installed, you know, safety systems, we can then grab this equipment, drive it in, and we can, you know, I know it's all on site, and we can hook it up and get the, the, the core cooling established so that we can't have a Fukushima type event. Hmm. Oh, and by the way, there's a national, there's two national parks in the United States, one for the West, Western states, one for the Eastern state, that within 24 hours, we could have additional equipment. And on top of that, each plant is required to have extras on site so that if there was an issue of say a hurricane was coming in, you could then every, all the, all the utilities share this equipment so that we could just keep throwing, you know, they're burning up this, this say it's a, a, an ox feed water pump. They're burning up their ox feed water pumps. We'll just keep, you, you got a line of extras coming in there so that you can just keep, you know, burning them up and using new ones. Mm. So our redundancies have redundancies have redundancies. Uh, and have redundancies and have redundancies. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and and that's that's assuming that you have gone beyond. So the that's that's this is beyond the initial installed redundancies of you have you know an A and a B train, two trains of, of safety, of full safety equipment that are diesel, you have a diesel-driven generator that provides one train, one for the other. So you have your initial backup to whatever's installed at the plant. So one of those goes, if you lose one, you have the other one as a backup, you know, and then, oh, we have batteries that, you know, provide additional backup. So there's, like I said, it's redundancy after redundancy after redundancy. And then we've installed more redundancy. <laughs> you know, as I listen to you talk here, I, I just, there's part of me that just kind of smirks at all of this because I think to myself, well, this is an incredible amount of sort of uh, 
like it's it's this thing that happens with the government where they this <laughs> sort of bureaucratic bloat and this uh this uh sort of uh this demand that we have or that the government has to overregulate everything to the point where they regulate it out of existence and we see that <laughs> not not just in the nuclear industry but but other places but particularly this one um and i, I guess i just wonder what are your thoughts on I, this podcast is a lot about what people can do. I mean, I like to educate them and bring guests on who can edu educate my guests, but I want them to walk with something where they feel like I can do something about the things I just heard. And I guess I just wonder the U S seems to be a place that kind of has like a stranglehold on this industry. And it's like, no, you got to have 12 redundancies. And even then we're still not even gonna probably let you build one. What, what do we as citizens, as civilians need to do to maybe put a little pressure on things to maybe stop subsidizing wind and solar. And, and, and even if we're not going to subsidize nuclear to pull the subsidies away from this other stuff or to shift the emphasis, I mean, what, what do you suppose can be done? Um, I think probably the best thing would be, you know, call your congressman, call your, you know, your senators and, you know, even communicate with your, with your local state government as well. Because I guess 14 states you can't even build nuclear in right now. Like it's just it's it, their laws prohibit it because uh, they require you know say Yucca Mountain has to be you have to have a long term repository which was Yucca Mountain. So if we eliminated that you know that expectation, you know states like Oregon could could build nuclear. Oregon had a nuclear reactor that was shut down in the 90s, um, but you know we could rebuild nuclear. And you know one of the things that that a lot of people don't necessarily know or understand is is that we basically stopped building nuclear in the 70s. So we had no experience. And now we're building these two plants down in Georgia, or these two reactors down in Georgia, and we have no you know, background on how to build these things, right? We lost all that experience. And so we're, we're learning as if we've never done it before because we have, hmm. it's been decades since we've done this. And so a lot of people, when they hear that, they go, you know, they hear the, the cost overruns and the schedule delays and I go, you've never built a, law, a large scale project. That's normal, especially for the first one. And, the, and people are like, what do you mean? Like, well, I, I, while I was in the Navy, I was, you know, you had a, a close following and, and was very involved in the construction of the USS Gerald R. Ford, nuclear powered aircraft carrier, supposed to cost about 12 billion. I think the final price tag was 18. It was delayed over a year. There were problems with the catapults and the, the weapons elevators and you know all sorts of issues with this with this with this with this ship and it's funny again going back to the mythology how many people to this day believe that the the ship can't launch aircraft and i'm literally going um here let me show you the article where they set the record for the most number of launches in a day on the ship that doesn't work and you're and you know what you're telling me it doesn't work and it's actually setting a record I've seen it launch aircraft like like um, and so there's a lot of that where, you know, the information doesn't get updated. And I think that's that's part of you know what would be, you know, if you find the information and, and promote it and understand it, um, you know, and ask the questions. Right. You know, and, and you know, if your viewers follow me on Twitter or they don't want to follow me on Twitter, that's fine. But I have open DMs and I try to respond to everyone 
who has great questions because, or any questions, you know, the, the dumbest question is the question that isn't asked, right? And I'm a firm believer in that, you know, ask the question because, uh, you know, I, I've lived this industry for my entire life and sometimes I miss the blind spots on things. Uh, there was a prime example about six months ago where I was in nonstop debate talking about nuclear waste, nuclear waste, like, what about the leaks? What about the leaks? What about the leaks? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, about these leaks. And they were talking, again, going back to that misconception between, you know, weapons and power. Well, there's a bunch of leaking containers that, you know, out, out at Bikini Atoll uh, in Micronesia, out in, um, in Hanford, Washington, that contains liquid waste from weapons. Well, the waste, you know, that, that has that plutonium, the actinids, as they're called, that's the technical term for things that can produce fission, can, that you can use in nuclear power or weapons. But um, nuclear waste from power plants, the spent nuclear fuel, is a solid pellet contained inside the zirconium tubes that are a solid that is then stored inside a, a steel-lined container that is reinforced with concrete, with steel on the outside of that. So they're saying the leaks. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, leaks. I mean, for maintenance, you just got to slap a coat of paint on these things every 20 years and it'll be fine, right? Like it's not, well, and then, and then on top of it, the other thing is, is that that's the old containers. The new containers are then put inside concrete bunkers. And so they have weather protection on top of it. So it's like, so I've got a solid inside of a solid inside of a, inside of steel. It's concrete reinforced with steel. It's then in a concrete bunker. And if you look at the tests of these containers, they like pick them up to 200 feet and drop them. They ran trains into them and they didn't have any issues. So when I hear people say, well, you know, I just, I don't know how to, how do I solve it? How do I, how do I explain to you that, that nothing goes through that level of, of safety assessment that you operate on a daily basis that you think is safe, right? You how people drive around in their car and you know are concerned about that. And there's way less safety safety engineering that goes into your cars, let alone a spent nuclear storage container, let alone a nuclear reactor. Well, but the problem is that's lead paint, Mark. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think this is a good opportunity to make a little segue here into the waste because uh, one of the things that I find uh, personally frustrating is, you know, here in the U.S., we don't do a good job of recycling the waste, and and maybe you could touch on that a little bit because I think you I think you just kind of knocked it out of the park with um, the safety on on the storage of the waste, but. Uh, I'd like to get a little bit deeper into the thick of things as far as how we could be making better use of the nuclear material in the first place. Well, and that, and that's a, that is a great segue and it'll get in a lot of discussion. So I've got, I've got my coffee cup here. It's about the size of a soda can, right? If we mine uranium, this is enough, this is enough uranium in a, in a conventional nuclear reactor that we have today to power your lifetime. Right. And we use 0.7% of that uranium as fuel. So less than 1%. So this, if I use this in an advanced reactor, like you said, with the recycling, if I could consume all of this, you know, and with switching from a thermal reactor, which is what we use now, to a fast reactor, I could power 100 lifetimes with this. Can you and, explain the difference between those two? 
Yeah, so the difference is whether you're using a uranium-235 as your fuel versus a plutonium fuel, or for your friends, because if you don't add, if you don't bring this up, your your the thorium cult's going to come after you, or thorium, right? Thorium is also fast spectrum, so thorium is a type of fuel, so and it behaves very similarly similarly to plutonium. Uranium-235 exists naturally, right? I pick up a chunk of uranium, 0.7% of that uranium is going to be uranium-235. You know, the remaining 99.3% is uranium-238. I put that uranium-238 with neutrons, it absorbs the neutrons, it becomes plutonium-239 and 240, and that's a fast fuel leading it. And the fast versus thermal is just your new, the, the flavor of neutron you're using, whether it's a low energy or high energy. So thermal reactors require low energy, which is why we use water as coolant, because it takes those, because when neutrons are created in the nuclear reaction, they're at high energies and you got to bring their energy state down. Water does a great job of that. Terrible if you want to use a fast reactor. So we switch away from water coolants and you can use things like molten salts. You can use uh, liquid metals, gas, gas to keep that rate, that neutron at a higher energy. Well, with uranium-238, it absorbs a neutron, becomes plutonium. Um, with thorium, thorium's not a fuel by itself. It acts much like that uranium-238. It needs to absorb a neutron to then become uranium-233. Now you can see how confusing this gets in. I've said uranium-235, 238, and 233, all talking about fuel, right? So it gets very confusing very quickly. Um, and once we can use that, now we're using, uh, you know, the uh, we can use 100% of that fuel, right? And, you know, for your followers, if you want to understand how we can make this work, if you go to the, if you Google traveling wave reactor and you'll see this is this is bill gates's design or TerraPower's design and they have a great gif or is it gif however you pronounce that and it shows a reactor that that generates its own fuel it starts with an initial slug in the center it generates fuel outward and consumes it the whole time and mm. it's just it's this great image using colors and so it, if you, your viewers want to know is the education to learn how to use that that's a great way. And we can consume nuclear waste in that manner. The nuclear, we call it nuclear waste. I, you know, I think I was talking with, um, with uh, one of the, the communications directors at uh, NEI, and he, he wanted to try calling it uh, gently love or previously loved nuclear fuel. Because <laughs> we've, only, we, we've used less than 5% of the energy out of it, right? Mm. Out, out of the nuclear fuel, right? I, you know, naturally, that's how much you need from natural we enrich it. So we basically put five times the amount so that this small, the amount it's actually put in the reactor is much smaller to power your lifetime. You know, we, it's called enriching. So we get more uranium 235 and then we, the depleted uranium goes to the army to go be tank armor. Um, and we could take that, our spent nuclear fuel and we could use it to make um, two power nuclear reactors. And, you know, in, in a fast spectrum, which, you know, we're talking the molten salts, the, uh, you know, liquid uh, liquid metals and gas cooled. So you're changing your coolants, which again, if you go back to those meltdowns, right? Uh, I mentioned earlier, because I'm going to segue back into that because it's always, a, you know, it's all interconnected in some way or another. Um, I talked about Chernobyl and SL1 as one type of, of meltdown. They were an overpower. They basically put, generated too much heat in the reactor, right? Whereas Fukushima and Three Mile Island, where the reactor was shut down, and there's something called residual heat, right? So 
we have taken reactors that are of a different flavor than water cooled. And one is specifically EBR2, which stands for Experimental Breeder Reactor 2. And we put it through a Fukushima test on crack, meaning that it was operating at full power and we just turned off cooling. And the reactor shut itself down and it maintained itself cool because I don't have water that you know is going to continue to to get hot and boil and water then becomes steam, which then steam is a great blanket, terrible to conduct heat. Well, EBR2 is a, a sodium cooled reactor using liquid sodium. And so it was a liquid metal cooled reactor. Well, you know, you put a fireplace poker in, you know, in the, you know, the 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 fireplace, right? In the fire. And over time that heat's gonna just burn you, right? From the outside of that. It is not it's not containing the heat, so it extracts the heat rapidly. So that reactor got to a certain temperature and stayed there, but it was able to dissipate the heat. And it actually got to a point where it, at, at this high temperature, it shut the reaction down and it would cool down slightly, bring the reaction up, basically maintained a state where it just kept at a hot temperature, just stayed there idle. Hmm. Um, previous reactors to that underwent of the same uh, molten metal variety with flaws in their designs, they underwent three mile or sorry they underwent uh sl1 chernobyl style overpower casualties like way too much heat they melted their fuel but they pulled and it was a partial meltdown meaning it wasn't you know chernobyl was a full meltdown the entire fuel was was melted into you know physically left the reactor vessel boundary itself at these reactors there's one out in san susana out in uh out in uh, california and then EBR1, the predecessor to EBR2 out in Idaho, and they actually were able to withdraw, with, remove these melted cores, put a new cores and operate them for decades, hmm. right? So, you know, your selection of coolant actually changes the safety capabilities of your reactor, makes hmm. them safer. Just as a little aside, uh, done a lot of welding in my life. Never as a career, but I enjoy welding. And um, one of my welding mentors uh, had done some nuclear welding back in the day. And he, uh, he said, that was the most frustrating job I've had in my life because every single weld we did, they x-rayed. And if there were any imperfections at all whatsoever, then we trashed the material and we had to do it all over again. Uh, and the certifications and the and the just the amount of uh, sort of training and oversight made that a miserable job for the guy but it sort of uh it was one of those things early in my life where i went huh maybe i haven't gotten the full story on this and and maybe just as another little tangent i don't want to get too out in the weeds but it it does sort of make you wonder or 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 think for a moment okay who who's in control of the media again and, and why do we have all these stories coming out about these situations that are um, either so remote in, in possibility that they are essentially impossible or it's actually just impossible? Why, why are these the stories that always end up being told about this and that? <laughs> I don't necessarily, you, you could respond to that or not. I, you know, you, you don't have to, you don't have to sort of put your tinfoil hat on or anything, but it's just something maybe for people to think about, I guess. And... <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I do I'll like learn. the welding. 
I, I do like the welding comment because I've, I've actually, I've never, I'm, I'm not a welder. I've never, but I've, I've been that guy who was, you know, um, ensuring the welds were done properly, not, not as a QA inspector, but, uh, um, you know, the hydrostatic test to make sure like, so, so, and, and to give background, right. So you, you got through the welder, the welder aspect, right? So the welder has to go through all that qualification of those welds. And then if that weld is say in a piping system or on the reactor vessel, we'll go through and do what's called a hydrostatic test. So first we x-ray to make sure that the weld is great. And that x-ray goes back to the, the shipyards where you can, you know, you know, if, if you want to steal a source to go make a dirty bomb, go to a shipyard, not, not to a nuclear plants, it's, it's easier. Um, not that that's really easy either, but, um, but, so we would basically raise, you know, you put water in it and then you raise the pressure up on these systems to extremely high pressures. Like the plant never operates at that level. It's like, you know, here's, here's the operating level. Here's where your safety valves are going to keep the plant going. And um, let me move this down. Here's where we hydrostatically test it. So <laughs> like it's way above it. And, you know, and then you're going through and you, you and, you have inspectors that inspect every single one of those weld beads, right? That are supposed to look like stacked dimes so that, you know, you know that I actually understand a little bit what I'm saying when I talk about welding. But um, yeah, so it was, it's, it's fascinating. Every little detail, um, the amount of, you know, I was deeply involved in watching them, you know, cut out welds and, and, you know, it was amazing the amount of things that they had to do. I watched a reactor vessel on a submarine under construction was installed, they had an issue, they had to cut this thing out, pull it out, do a bunch of work to weld it, to, to, to repair the damage they did, put it back in, re-weld it, had another flaw, like it was just the amount of effort. And it was probably, you know, a couple of really minor errors that probably wouldn't have ever damaged anything, probably could have lasted for, you know, the 33 years under the shock tests and everything. It probably cost the shipyard that was building that particular vessel I don't know, 30, 40 million dollars because of a minor error. That if that was a car, you'd be like, yeah, that's good enough. Like, you know, like it, it's just, it's crazy how the, the scrutiny, the over regulation, the over, um, you know, the amount of effort put into it. And, you know, and I work, I've worked in two nuclear worlds with the United States Navy and then the commercial world. And the Navy is way more over regulated than even the commercial world is with regards to that. So. So this is maybe not the the classiest thought I've ever had, but <laughs> I, I'm good with those. I was I was on submarines. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. Yeah, the Navy <laughs> is uh, a <laughs> my friend Chief Chuck can attest to the Navy's language uh, culture. <laughs> but uh, but my question is this. Even even suppose that we have this intense regulatory environment here in the United States. There are startups, there are sort of Globocom corporation kind of things. Um, it, what what is holding us back from sort of funding these experimental processes or these uh, these proof of concept things in places where? maybe the regulatory environment is, is significantly less strict. Like, uh, I mean, I know you and Adam talked about this a little bit, but I, I just would like to kind of rehash it a little bit because I'm interested in it. Why, why is it that we don't uh, 
sort of farm the risk out until we have a, a solid proof of concept and then bring all the engineers back here that know what they're talking about and, and pay them enough money to make it worth a while to come here instead of staying where they're at. So one of the things that's uh, different about the U.S. from most nations when it comes to nuclear is that we don't have a state nuclear corporation, right? So if you look at like Russia, they have Rosatom, which Rosatom does all their nuclear, right? It's it's every reactor in Russia is owned by Rosatom. And then they provide the training and the operating for plants outside of Russia that they have built, right? Or they have assisted in building, right? So whether it's in India, whether it's in Hungary, whether it's in Ukraine or in Egypt, where they're going to restart building next year. So you have this state corporation that is in charge of the overall program that they receive funding from the from the state as well as you know from the fact they're util you know they they build these reactors and money is generated from that. Uh, and I believe France has something similar with Framatome. Framatome is I don't know if it's necessarily state, but it's a unified concept. And so they have a, a partnership with the government that's really well done. Well, in the U.S., we have a very disjointed way of doing that, right? So right now we've built we're building those two reactors down in, in Georgia, and Westinghouse is the is the is the reactor designer for that. But Southern Nuclear had to get the license for it. So mm -hmm. so Southern got the license for the reactor design. For Vogel, the license was actually the actual where they actually did the bill. They had to get a separate license through the NRC, but Southern had it. Southern Nuclear had to do it. Westinghouse was building two in South Carolina, a now defunct company called Scana, had to get a separate license for that area, right? So you don't have a it is not centralized in that manner, which would make it easier to work with work with a government. Now the U.S. also has you know whether that work in the U.S. I don't know. Because the fact is, is that we are basically 51 nations, not including, you know, the District of Columbia and our territories, right? You've got 50 states plus the federal government, and we each have our own rules. So the regulations on constructing something, you know, going back to those 14 states, they're different between each state and the way that you can build. And so that makes it difficult when you're going to license. I might have a license that, you know, fulfills something at the federal level that won't fulfill it at the state level. And so that's one of the frustrations that, that when you're in the nuclear industry, you see. Now, when you start, and a lot of it's because these are large-scale projects, you know, environmental impact statement. I mean, a thousand megawatts of energy is a lot of energy, right? This isn't like, you know, going down and buying a little, you know, generator, right? These are huge. That's, that's 200,000 homes worth of power, right? Mm. We're talking city level and maybe even more. I mean, I'm, I've got the math probably off. But now when you look at a smaller design, like a um, um, small modular reactor, a micro reactor, do you have to have an environmental impact statement for 1.5 megawatts? That's a small, I could throw that on the bed of a truck. I could build a generator that, you know, a diesel generator, so I would have to bring up, you know, um, you know, fuel to it all the time. But, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot to make a 1.5 megawatt generator. I mean, you know, the submarines I was on, that's, that's less power than, than electrical power. And our electrical power is very small on a submarine because mainly it's about pushing the ships into water. That's smaller than the generators on the, the ships I served on, right? And those aren't very big generators. You know, 1.5 megawatts is not that much uh, power. But if I make a small reactor like that and I could put it, you know, and it's so safe that I don't need to have, you know, be concerned about, it, you know, doing a large quantity, you know, 
explosion dispersal of, of you know, nuclear fuel, I can keep my footprint small in as far as safety, as far as overall construction. Well, now the environmental impact, you know, when I basically spread it out across, you know, say a thousand reactors in a thousand locations, as opposed to a large scale reactor in one location, you know, there's a lot of things that make that super exciting. And by the way, going back to that mobile, the United States military is trying to get reactors that are mobile, that they could put on, you know, they could fit inside of an airplane that could then be shipped over and used to, to power a forward operating base or, you know, or, or for FEMA purposes, right. You know, we had the, uh, mm. the issue out and, you know, we had the, the hurricanes came through and, you know, just absolutely devastated, you know, Puerto Rico. Well, if we had these, you know, part of the military mission that a lot of people don't realize is the humanitarian aid or, you know, military goes in and does something. Well, imagine if the air force and army, you know, they went and they, you know, flew these, you know, little re mobile reactors in, set them up. You've got military security. So you have to worry about any of that stuff, you know, be military grade equipment, but you could get that up there, get it up and running, you know, power the city while you're getting everything built. And then when you're done, you could take it all down, pull it out of there. Good to go. Mm. So this is an area that is of, it tugs at my fascination, let's say. Uh, I, I, I like to think about what the future may hold, not just in the near future, but I'd like to try to forecast in my mind what might happen in, in the distant future or the relatively distant future, a couple centuries or, or something like this. And I guess I wonder, right now we have the Space Force sort of ramping up and a lot of people don't take it seriously, but uh, if you kind of look at where we're at as, uh, as the human species, we're on one rock and this rock is in constant danger, whether or not we'd like to think about that or not. We kind of need to be a, a multiple rock species, uh, at least for a little while. Uh, and people like Elon Musk, it seems like everything he's doing is geared towards making that happen. It's he's building underground transport. He is developing battery systems. All, you know, he's going to, he's going to space right now. He's got plans to go to Mars. He's doing the Neuralink thing. It's like everything you would need to be a space person will be on a spaceship or be out in space or be on another planet. It's like, it's kind of seems like that's what he's really pointed at, at least to me. And I guess I wonder Right now we have nuclear subs and nuclear ships. And, and so to maybe tie all this stuff together, I guess I wonder, on the one hand, do you foresee a situation or, or like a, a paradigm in the future where very small nuclear reactors uh, or nuclear power sources might be powering uh, consumer level vehicles like cars or trucks and or planes or, or or that's going to become a, like a standardized energy source for these things. And then, and then on the other hand, uh, it almost seems like nuclear is basically the really only way to go for going to be a interplanetary or even interstellar species at some point. And I guess I wonder, uh, and obviously the technology to go very past or very far past Mars or whatever is going to take some, some innovation and things. But I guess I just wonder your thoughts as you look to the future, not just in the, you know, the coming decade or two, but in as humanity continues to grow and hopefully we, we survive ourselves and don't, don't run into another dinosaur rock or anything like that. What do you, how do you envision nuclear um, playing a part in the, in the grand story of humanity moving forward? So I will start by what exists. 
So right now on, on its way to Mars is a rover that has a nuclear power source. So that's what we have that exists that's, that's being deployed. We've tested a, a it's called the Kilopower reactor um, out in Nevada. It did its online testing where it was a proof of concept testing in 2018. And this is the reactor basis for the Oakville reactor, which is that 1.5 megawatt that I keep talking about. They basically upscaled the kilopower reactor. So kilo meaning less than mega, right? So anything less than a thousand kilowatts is kilopower. And I think that it's, uh, you know, when you're talking and, and here's what I would love and I hope that we get there. I can take a kilopower reactor. It's about the size of a mini fridge, about the size of a dishwasher, right? I can build one. It could last for 20 years and power four homes worth, hmm. right? And think about, think about, you know, we're becoming more electricity driven. We're using more energy, not less, right? As, as, a, as a society, as a species. If we could eat, everyone could go get those, right? You go build, you know, you go buy one and you have to go, when you get done with it, you can't just throw out the trash. You have to have a company come out and remove it and put in a new one. I don't think that's that's too big of a deal. We do that with a lot of equipment already, right? We look at buyback programs for batteries for your car, right? We can do the exact same thing with this. It's, it's not, I would say it's not difficult. Um, and you can use, it wouldn't necessarily be difficult for shielding. You'd have specialty guys that would come in to do your maintenance on it. Yeah, you might not be able to be in the home when, you, when they do it. Sorry, that's just, you know, you, know, you just have to deal with that, but you're gonna have 80 million cameras in your home. It's like so spraying for bugs it. too. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, right. Yeah. yeah. Same, same yeah. type of concept. Three days. So I could I could <laughs> see that. Um, I, I definitely see that. It'd be amazing to do that. And one of the things that that I see is that when we go towards, uh, you know, micro to super small reactors, we really are. We can disconnect from, you know, from wired energy sources. Right. So when you look at it right now, you, you drive around and, you know, when, when I drive into the you know, drive to the power plant, you just see all the power lines going in. Right. And it's like this big, giant, you know, physical network that exists. But when you go to micro, now you have an electrical network that is remote. Right. And you can have microcosms or little microgrids everywhere. But everyone has power and you can still remotely power things. And, you know, you're not you're not stuck in that. I have to have this big, giant energy infrastructure. And the other thing, too, is, is that if you look at like the price of electricity, when you get to remote areas like northern Alaska, there's no reason to build a power plant up there. So everyone just runs on their own personal generators. Right now, imagine if you could bring a small reactor to location. There's a lot of a lot of especially Canada with uh oil shale companies, right? Oil companies want nuclear for extraction purposes. So the Middle East is going nuclear. There's like multiple nations that are going nuclear. They're using large scale because they have centralized population areas because they want to sell the oil. There's not a lot of oil gener or oil fired power plants on the planet. It's typically natural gases is coal uh, for your fossil fuels. They want to use oil for you know shipping and things like that. But that's another thing that we see is, is that there's more discussion about um maritime usage right think about how much space your fuel takes in a large-scale ship there's a large amount of fuel that is used imagine if you could use that for storage instead because mm. your reactor takes up you know a lot less space right i can you know we're talking you know your reactor overall is going to be relatively small on your ship 
And now you have a whole lot more room for space and it, you have a long, you know, a, a longevity, right? I can run a ship that, that, you know, circumnavigates the globe several times without needing to be refueled, hmm. right? Right now you're, you know, when you're looking at a, at a container ship, you know, they're stopping in to drop off the containers and they're gassing up and then moving on to the next thing. If you actually look at it, like I think the cost of fuel uh, for a container ship is like $300 million a year or something like that. It's ridiculous. The amount of money that they spend on it's like twice the cost of the ship itself because of how much they're, they're moving, you know, they're, they're constantly moving these things through the water. Now the goods are being moved. So with nuclear though, you're doing that cost up front. And so, you know, when you put that cost up front, yeah, your ship's going to cost a billion dollars, but your fuel cost is we're going to remain constant or it's going to remain zero because you're, you know, until you refuel it, well, you can design your vessel or your reactor to last as long as the vessel. Now, when you get into shipbreaking and decommissioning vessels, that becomes an issue because now I've got a nuclear reactor I got to manage. I don't want you to go beach these things in India and then you know, have a bunch of guys in bare feet, you know, cutting up these stuff, right? I want to, you know, so it changes the process of what you can do that. So let's say you say, well, your normal fuel cost, we say $300 million a year. And I'm kind of arbitrarily picking these numbers. I don't remember specifically, but let's say you say, all right, you got to put $30 million a year um, into, a, into a fund to cut up your ship, at least cut up the nuclear portion of it. And now you've got, you know, when the ship is done, you know, you cut it up, whatever's left over, you get to put in your pocket as profit. And so, or to, you know, start purchasing the next one, you know, for savings, by the way, the nuclear industry does that already with power plants. They have a decommissioning fund. They put a bunch of, uh, every, the initial fund goes into it. So when you shut down the reactor, you can, you know, put it back to, you know, a, a zero state as if the plant wasn't there and you add money in it, into it each year for, um, you know, to make sure you have enough as inflation and regulations change. Hmm. Hmm. I'm just, uh, I'm taking a moment to think about what you just said, because, <laughs> you know, I, I really did like four times. On well, that. no, I, I really <laughs> dig what you're saying here because I really, I have a, just as a person, I have an endless fascination for the way the world works and I love being alive. I love my life and maybe everybody doesn't feel that way all the time, but I want people, I, I'm on team people. I'm on team life. I want it to keep rolling. And without, again, without getting too far into the weeds, uh, there's this green push uh, that's more of a political or like a socio-political push for a certain emphasis on things. But even if you let's, you know, if you remove climate change and everything out of the discussion, you still have the fact that, okay, well, if you burn stuff, it makes smoke and smoke makes breathing not that great, especially in a place like I, I live in Utah and the winters here, the inversions in the mountain valleys are brutal. It kills people. It kills old people. It kills young people. It kills people who have respiratory issues. It's, it's rough. I mean, you can, and it, and it, from what I understand, when the pioneers came here, there was still this layer of haze in the winters be, just because of the pressure and the way it, it captures the air inside of the valleys. Um, but I have I have driven into Salt Lake Valley, for example, in the winter and gone up on this road. It's called Foothill Road that runs along the east end of the valley on, on the on the mountains. And there's this layer that where you drive through it in the winter during an inversion, you have to turn on your 
windshield wipers with the fluid about every 10 seconds because there's this brown haze that sticks to everything. And when you breathe it, you can taste it. And it's, it's, it's like, it's almost like breathing in atmospheric phlegm. It's rough. It makes you feel <laughs> sick immediately. And part of that is the industrial, uh, air pollutants. And even if, even if you're not, and, and like I said, I don't want to make this too political or, or, you know, whatever, but if you remove the, the, the burning of natural gas or coal or any of these types of fuels and replace it with something that uh, has uh, <laughs> an insignificant footprint in that regard, it seems like the entire world gets pretty significantly better pretty quickly. And I guess I just wonder your thoughts on, on some of the benefits beyond just the capacity to bring energy to places cheaply or where places like you were talking about with some of these uh, mobile units where you might not otherwise build a giant plant and everybody's running on generators like Alaska or places that don't have any sort of power generation at all where you could put something on the back of a truck and get it out there and power a village, for example. But but what are some of these other benefits like environmental impact or things like this that maybe kind of get glossed over because people are too afraid to even think about nuclear uh, power in the first place. Well, I mean, you you touched on the pollution aspect. You know, actual nuclear generation produces no uh, pollution, or you know, so there's no emission. So when you see the big giant cooling towers, that's water vapor that's coming out of it, right? And now when you burn a coal plant, right, and you see the you see the smoke coming off, a good portion of that is water vapor, but it's also carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, it's all sorts of other stuff in it. But out of a nuclear power plant. All that is coming up is water vapor. Literally, you have water that comes into the plant that uh, you know is used to cool it to to because it's a heat engine, so it needs a heat sink. And so that's and all you're seeing is just basically it's a bunch of water, it's a bunch of big steam plume, if you will. Um, and last time I checked, you know, actually humid air is pretty good for the lungs, so that's a good thing uh, overall. Um, uh, so that's one thing that is the the other thing that you can use you can use nuclear for is you can generate uh, fresh water with it, right? So if you say have that cooling tower on say a saltwater, um, you know, source, you could take that water vapor, right? You know, the salt's not gonna boil off, it's gonna remain. So you have a brinish solution, you put it back into the ocean, you know, or wherever, and you could take and you could then condense that that steam into water, and then you could pump that in places where you could you, you actually use excess energy from the plant for water generation, which you could then ship in. So you'd have a freshwater source, you know, desalinization. Now so that's, that's something I've one. never thought about. That is interesting. That is so interesting right there. Huh. Um, um, are there any pushes to make something like that a reality anywhere that you know about? Um, I, 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 yes, there is. Uh, and that's, uh, there's probably the biggest company that talks about that the most or two, one is TerraPower, Bill Gates' company, the other is Terrestrial Energy, which is, you know, TerraPower is based out of Seattle. Terrestrial Energy is just a little further north in British Columbia, in uh, Vancouver. And, um, you know, they, they talk about the pairing of that, you know, things like that, where you can, you know, use it for, you know, desalinization. The other thing is, is you can use process heat for things. Um, so you may not necessarily, you know, because you can do, you make it and turn a turbine, you can desalinate water, but Let's say you need something that just needs heat. A big technology that needs that is actually carbon extraction, right? So you make 
things that suck carbon dioxide out of the air. Well, it requires heat to, uh, you know, to actually, you know, the, your, whatever your, your fluid is that, that, uh, that absorbs the CO2, you heat it back up to extract the CO2. So you, you run a filter, we run an air across it. It takes the CO2 out. And then as it cycles through this, the, 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 whatever the, 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 the cycle of it, and you heat up a portion of it, then it extracts it so you can collect it and you can eject it. And that's something that submarines actually do because you have a contained atmosphere. So you want, don't want to build up too much CO2. So they actually, you know, they call them scrubbers. They scrub the CO2 out of the air. So this is technology that we've been using for decades, at least military-wise, uh, to extract CO2 out of the air. Well, you take that CO2 and, you know, it's carbon dioxide, right? You can make your soda drinks with it. Um, that's one thing you do with it, or you could break that CO2 down into things to turn it into, you know, um, the hydrocarbons if you want to make a, a very pure, pure fuel, right? Because if you made, you know, right now, part of the reason why your fuels are so dirty is that you're extracting a chemical out of the earth, right? That chemical has impurities in it, that you burn that, that goes in the atmosphere. Well, if I made pure octane, which is just gasoline, right? That's that that grade, right? When you see that number, 85, 87, 90, that's the percentage of octane that is in your gasoline. Well, if I had 100% octane gasoline, I wouldn't, you know, have sulfur and all those nasty chemicals in it because it's just a hydrocarbon chain that's going to essentially burn up pure and you're not going to have any, you know, your smog coming out is going to be water and water and CO2 because it's, that's combustion. Hmm. There's this, uh, there's this design system that started out as sort of like a, mostly focused on, on raising food. It's called permaculture. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the idea. I'm but, familiar with permaculture. Yeah. And there's this, there's a super important principle within permaculture called stacking functions, which is essentially, okay, well, like I'll, I'll give you an example in the world of food production. You want to raise chickens. Okay, cool. Why? Because chickens produce eggs. chicken and yeah, eggs, that's right? True. Exactly. I, I right. actually have chickens in my backyard. Yeah, I did until I, I moved into my new house and, you know, I'll, in the future I'll be having chickens again. But my, my point with this is, okay, that's, that's like base level thinking. I want eggs. And then yep. most people who raise chickens don't even ever eat them because they feel bad because they learn to – treat them kind of like pets and like, Oh, I can't eat clucky. <laughs> <I'll just laughs> very clucky in the garden, but okay. But the cool thing about chickens is they'll eat almost anything. They're omnivorous. So yeah. when I had chickens, for example, I would take all my food waste to the chickens, except for a lot of the meat I would feed to my dogs and I wouldn't feed my chickens chickens. Cause that's just dark. That's just weird. But, yeah. I, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. My, my chickens but, are not cannibals, but they are. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I mean, they would be, but I don't let them be because I don't approve yeah. of cannibalism in general. But okay. But Guess what that turns into? Well, it turns into poop. And, and then I would take my yard waste, if it, as long as it wasn't too woody, and I would put it in my chicken run, which is a pretty decent sized space. And they would eat what they wanted and scratch the rest and poop on it. And I would go in there and turn it every so often. And then I had really great compost, which I would then use to fertilize my garden. And for years, I used no outside fertilizer. I used what my chickens made for me and liquid gold. I won't go into that too much because it freaks people out a little bit. Just if, you, if you're if you into it, you know what I'm talking I, about. If you don't, I, I you know, know what liquid fine. gold is. It makes amazing <laughs> vegetables. Um, it really does, but okay. <laughs> but okay. 
but you know, so the chickens then they're consuming food waste that would otherwise go to a landfill. Uh, they're creating compost. They're consuming my yard waste, which would otherwise go to a landfill. They're creating eggs. They're creating meat for me. Um, and they're also, they're just fun to have around. They're funny little creatures. And, yeah. and they eat a lot of the insects in the yard, which keeps, as long as you keep them kind of out of the garden so they don't eat it, all your stuff, or you let them in there for a couple minutes and then shake a can of food to get them to go back into the chicken run. So the point I'm making with this is, it's sort of like our situation with nuclear in the U.S. right now. We're, we're at that sort of basic level where it's like, well, we, we can use 0.7% of, of the capacity of what we have here. And then we could go, well, we could recycle fuel and then we could use all of it. But then we could also use it as desalinization. We could also use it to uh, harvest all these other outputs. And then we could use those to tie into further systems. And I guess I wonder without getting too wound up about permaculture here <laughs> and going too far off a subject and ranting about chickens. How much of what excites you about nuclear is not just the idea that we can create energy affordably and that it's a lot safer than people think and that a lot of the risks that people have been conditioned to believe are reality but which aren't necessarily how much of what excites you is these stacking of function and these these second and third and fourth order consequences of being able to use these systems to to clean up our air and to create other benefits and 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 what what am i missing here that these higher order uh tools or opportunities are created by by transitioning more and more towards a nuclear paradigm all right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna have to give a disclaimer that uh, I I don't use uh, cannabis in uh, any regards because uh, that would get me fired from the nuclear industry for five years for first offense, second offense permanently. Um, okay. So uh, the cannabis industry has reached out to me like crazy, and it and and it's going into that, you know, maybe not permaculture, but I imagine it from say like an aquaculture, aquaponics, um, uh, hydroponics level where they're looking at growth facilities, right? They use large amounts of power because you can get extremely high quality food that you can grow indoors, right? And, you know, so, and here's, here's, and, and my, I have a cousin who's a big guy in the cannabis industry. And uh, one of the things that's fascinating, he and I talk about this stuff constantly, but the idea of, let's say you're in New York city, you got this big giant city and you need a lot of food, but you want fresh produce and you want it, you want it, really 365 days a year, right? You want to, you want, you want the freshest of the fresh produce. So let's say you had skyscrapers that were these dedicated green, you know, they're not even greenhouses, they're indoor growth facilities. You're not, you're not even worried about the external sun. You know, you've got, you know, you've got a perfect light condition set so that you grow, you know, the best quality tomatoes, the best quality lettuce and, and all that stuff. And let's say you pair it with, uh, you know, aquaculture where you've got fish that are you know growing and fertilizing these so you're not hydroponics right you're feeding the fish which you grow duckweed with which then and which then you know their 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 uh, fecal matter is then used to you know um you know fertilize all these plants but you need energy for all this right you need energy for light you need energy for pumps you need you know energy 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 and so that's where the nuclear reactor that's in the basement of this facility is where it all begins and you see that stacking where it starts out you know, with the nuclear reactor, oh, we've also reduced transportation costs because 
you just you have a store at the basement or your grocery stores at the at the first floor of this skyscraper. So the food is being shipped by elevators up and down. It comes in or you've got fresh fish, you've got, you know, all the, the food you need for, you know, for, for your, your population to have good, high quality food. And it's right in the middle of your city. OK. I'm sure you saw me just like uh, <laughs> you were like a kid. You were giddy. It was awesome. Well, listeners of this podcast know that one of my longtime <laughs> or like uh, long-term life goals is to become an overlord of a place that's like a community where all this stuff is taking place, and then to use that as a proof of concept, and then to build these places all over the world. And I haven't talked a lot about the idea of implementing nuclear in these places. And I, to be honest, man, I, I was kind of testing the waters with you there with the chickens and the permaculture. I just wanted to kind of see where you were at with things, but to have you talk about these things, there's, there's so much for people to dig into there. I, and I don't want to necessarily dive too deep into that and get off topic because there's, there's a million things we could dive into with all of that, but I really appreciate the fact that you've been thinking about these things and that you brought up the idea of using, you have your store, you have your grow, you have your food. And, and guess what? People live in that building too. Um, yeah. All the people who are working there. And then there's, it's not just the, it's not just the food that's being produced there. Hey, there's shops. There's uh, both in terms of, there's trade shops and art producing shops and but then there's also shops where they sell their wares and there's other kinds of stuff and then there's this giant community in a skyscraper or in a rural situation there's 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 housing and there's a food forest and there's all this kind of stuff and then there's an onboard energy situation and uh so there's i just want to encourage the people who hear or see this to just kind of think about these things because how possible is it Otherwise, so, if you don't even have to be connected to the grid and you can just have this situation locally, boy, that really makes that a lot more feasible than otherwise, doesn't it? <laughs> so here's here's the other interesting concept. We can make nuclear reactors afloat. We typically call them on ships, but you can make a barge and you could put a start a city in the middle of the ocean using you know your nuclear reactors, your energy source. And, you know, then you have all your modules that are connected onto it. And like you said, you know, this one is our, our greenhouses that grow our food. And, and you know, and you can literally have a city and you'd actually have propulsion. Sorry, you have propulsion on it. So you could actually move the city where you wanted it to as, you know, as it's going places. Like, like you know, well, it's, you know, it's the summer. We want to go north and see Alaska. And then in the winter, it comes back down and we, you know, we want to go back down more towards the tropics where it's, you know, you can you have a city that migrates, but you need energy for that, and that's what you need nuclear for. And if you're talking a city that migrates, you know, do you care if it goes, you know, a quarter of a knot? No, you really don't, because you know you just want it to move, you know, slowly. You know, you're migrating like a bird, if you will, but it's just or you know, like fish or you know, whales and all that. But you could do it out in the middle of the ocean, and you would, you know, that super dense energy source, and you know, you'd have ships that come in. You could have, you know you know, helicopters or planes and stuff like that. It'd be, you know, I, there's a lot you can do with that, going with that layering beyond just the thinking of, well, you know, we build a nuclear reactor, it produces electricity. Yeah, that's, that's uh, you know, I bought chickens for eggs. 
And next thing I know, when I look at it, you know, yeah, I've got, you know, I've got fertilizer that's making me great food. And, you know, that food goes, a lot of that, that scrap goes back to the chickens. So it's a, you know, constantly recycling. And, you know, the waste that they produce is actually super great because I still buy food because I need my meat, but I'm not actually taking it from my chickens because I may want, you know, pork or beef. And, you know, so I'm putting more, you know, scrap food out to them. And overall, my, my, uh, the overall health gets better. And, you know, going back to, you know, my, my cousin will appreciate this is that water retention in soil gets better the more carbon that's in it, the more carbon breakdown. So a lot of soils, like my soil and where I live is very clayish, especially when I first moved into this house. But over the years of, you know, I would go and buy compost and just throw it into my yard and it improved the soil quality along with having chickens and, you know, my dogs and stuff like that, that have, you know, started putting stuff into the soil, that the soil retains water even, you know, much better than it did when I first moved in. Hmm. When I started this conversation with you, Mark, there was, I had no idea <laughs> I was going to turn to permaculture and aquaponics and things. That's what a trip. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's what I love about this. And, you know, and, and part of what makes me different is that, uh, you know, when I, when I look at my, my fellow advocates are so focused on the, you know, there's two types of advocates for nuclear and I'm neither of them. You have your, the environmentalists that are, they're only focused on, decarbonizing the electric grid. That's all they could think about is I got to get rid of the fossils and renewables aren't going to do it. Right. And then there's the other group, which are the nuclear engineers and they don't know how to talk. Right. And so trying to, you know, to, and I'm neither of those and I don't consider myself a nuclear engineer. I'm an operator. So I speak engineer, I can speak environmentalist, but you see that I'm, you know, this jack of all trades, you know, kind of understanding these concepts. And, you know, I've tried some of them out even I tried, um, is it, uh hugo culture you ever tried hugo culture where you take the mound oh yeah yeah <laughs> big right? time so dude. You, didn't, you didn't expect <laughs> the nuclear expert to tell you that he's used hugo culture right in my garden it worked it worked great for several years everything's broken down now i need to re-perform all that but yeah i used hugo culture and you know and trying all that stuff you know i don't have a big garden but you know just to you know use that you know it fills up the waste it absorbs the water it keeps the you know it's amazing what you can do with this stuff <laughs> that's a whole other conversation yeah okay look look we're uh <laughs> we're about 80 minutes into this conversation and like i told you before we started i'm not going to try to joe rogan you and get you to talk to me for three or four hours but <laughs> we talked about some of the common misconceptions and concerns that people have about nuclear energy uh, we talked about um, what it might look like moving into the future and, and sort of the connections to the space industry and to the, these, maybe we'll call them alternative movements towards a different looking society. And even we talked about aquaponics and weed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, are there any things that we've missed or that you don't get a chance to talk about that interest you that you want to put a word or two to uh, before we start to round this conversation out? You know, uh, let's see here. We've caught, well, so I, I would say we have to cover, you know, we have to cover 
certain specific things. We covered waste, we covered weapons, we covered meltdowns, and we covered thorium. Um, I don't think we necessarily talked about the molten salt reactors. So that's, we, we, I, I mentioned it. Um, it's just a type of coolant. It can, it withstands higher heats. Um, by the way, the very first molten salt reactor was designed to go in an aircraft. It was to get, hmm. designed to go in a, plant, a, a nuclear powered jet aircraft. It was the very first molten salt reactor that was designed. So the Air Force, yeah, the Air Force designed a molten salt reactor uh, to go in the, in the aircraft nuclear power program back in the 50s. Okay. We did talk a little bit about thorium and we did talk a little bit about molten salt, but maybe let's touch a little bit on them with a little more detail, if you don't mind. And I, and I okay. want to go thorium first. What is, let's suppose no, somebody's never heard of thorium before. Uh, and they want to say, and they want to know, well, okay, I, I know that some people are interested in this. What do I need to know to make heads or tails of it? All right. So thorium is just another material, whether it's like uranium carbon, it just exists naturally, right? So it's nothing that we we create. If you walked outside and you you you, you stuck your your shovel in the ground and you, you uh, picked up a scoopful, there's actually thorium in that. That's how abundant it is. Right, it's extremely abundant. It's about three to four times more abundant than uranium. So it's an, a large quantity of thorium on the planet. Now, um, if we were to power off a of thorium, we've got about three quarters of a million years of energy available to us just from thorium alone. So it's 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 a very abundant fuel, um, and it has some some great benefits. It's extremely difficult for the proliferation thing. Uh, there's only been one weapon that was ever powered from the uranium 233 that's created from the thorium and it required other fissile materials to make it work so it's extremely hard to make weapons out of so that's one of the one of the benefits of it it's extremely hard to make weapons out of um and on top of that if you do want to make weapons out of it it produces a, a, a material that is very high in ionizing radiation um that is mixed in with it it's a, I think it's uranium 232. And so we, you know, you don't want to use that because, you know, it's, it's, it, it's very, not only is it hard to make from a standpoint of making a bomb, it's hard to make from a safety aspect. Um, but you can consume all that in a nuclear reactor and you're going to end up with a very uh, low waste profile. The waste profile of thorium is very similar to the waste profile of plutonium or pure uranium 235. Um, so your overall waste profile when you're done, as opposed to the thousands of years that everyone's concerned about, that they talk about, which by the way, that thousands of years is their concern is um, uh, uranium, uh, or sorry, the plutonium is your big concern, which is just fuel, right? So uh, thorium has about a 300 years, but you have to you have to manage, um, but not all of its waste. About you know as soon as you shut a reactor down uh, that was thorium powered after you consumed all its fuel. 60% of it's not waste, which is the same as true of a pure uranium-235 and a plutonium reactor. Uh, you can mix fuels, by the way. That's that's something that um, one of the misconceptions that people have when they talk thorium is, well, you can burn nuclear waste. And they said, well, now you actually have just a blended fuel reactor. So it'd be like using, you know, multiple types of, you know, diesel, grades of diesel fuel, right? It's the, you know, you're, you're, you're not just using one, you're using two types of fuel at this point. Right, that that's that. It's a mix of fuel, which is fine. Um, so that's one thing that's that's great about it is you can mix it with fuels, uh, and that actually goes a great segue into the molten salt reactors. Molten salt reactors are actually the easiest way to blend fuel, 
because what you can do with molten salts is you can just dissolve your fuel into it. It's called liquid fission then. So um, normally our fuel is held as a solid, but in a molten salt reactor, and by the way, one of the common forms of salt that used is sodium chloride. You know that is table salt, right? So you heat up table salt, it gets hot, and it turns into a liquid that looks like water and flows like water. Right, and so you could easily dump in these, you know, these uh, your your nuclear fuel into it. The salts will absorb it and dissolve it and create a nuclear salt with it. It then goes through its nuclear strain reaction. It produces heat, keeps that salt molten and hot, and um, you can then operate your, you know, make your steam cycle and make your your uh, your your nuclear power plant operate. Um, easy to use with nuclear waste because you just open it up drop the fuel pellets in there. You can use virgin fuels into it. You can fuel these online. Like right now, uh, most reactors on the world, you have to shut them down to refuel them. Shut them down, you disassemble them, you rip the reactor apart, take all the fuel out. A third of the fuel is now waste. The other two thirds you reassemble, reconfigure in with a third brand new fuel. And now you have a new configured reactor. With a molten salt reactor, I just dump it in there as I lose my nuclear fuel, I just add more into it, you know, much like topping off your gas tank. So that's one of the benefits of, a, of a, a molten salt reactor. You can also use molten salt just as a coolant. And you can use it, you know, with a, a standard solid fuel assembly. Or there's a company called Moltex, which they use molten salt in rods in a molten salt vat so that you have two separate systems so that your overall salts, your overall coolant, your large quantity of coolant isn't radioactive or high level radioactive and then your mm. your fuel is contained you can store your fuel a little easier or your spent huh. fuel a little easier so okay hmm. uh, again i'm just i'm just processing it's this is all so <laughs> fascinating to me um okay well so, so that's thorium, and and I, I guess and, and liquid salt, and you kind of jokingly referred to the cult of thorium before, but <laughs> from from your from your standpoint, do these sources do, does thorium make sense as a fuel, and does uh, molten salt as a system make sense to you? Do you think that's do you think either of those or both of those things are going to be the um, the situation moving forward? So I, I do I do believe that is. I don't think the U.S. is going to get there, though, um, at least not. We're not going to be the first. And mm -hmm. part of that is, is, is that, you know, you have regulations that prevent you from doing things. And then you have regulations that you need to do things. And mm -hmm. so there's something called the ASME code. Don't ask me what ASME stands for. But it's basically inspection of vessels for, you know, it's you know, boilers are part of this and then nuclear pressure vessels are part of that as well. The current ASME codes in the United States cover water, light water reactors, so we couldn't build a can-do style heavy water reactor, um, and uh, liquid metal reactors. So we could build a, a liquid lead or a, a liquid sodium reactor, but we can't use a molten salt reactor in the U.S. because we don't have the regulation framework in place to conduct the inspections. Until we get that, we can't do that. Um, we also don't have the same kind of experience that we have from uh, uh, using a thorium-powered reactor that we have 
from plutonium and uranium, right? A uranium reactor we have the most experience with, but we also actually generate a portion of the energy in our reactors is plutonium making it. So we have a good understanding of that because we generate plutonium and those neutrons that were born, I talked about earlier, they're high energy, we've got to bring them down to the energy state for the uranium-235. Well, in that process, some of those neutrons get captured by the plutonium and undergo fission. So we understand plutonium really well. We have a lot of experience with it compared to thorium. Thorium, we have a very small experience, not saying we couldn't get up there, but the US is very slow if you don't have precedent, right? That's just who we are. Now, there's a company called Thorcon that they've got kind of a genius maneuver. They're working with uh, the nation of Indonesia to build their floating power module. So going back to this barge concept, it's a molten salt reactor and it can be powered from any of the fuels. All you do is you just adjust, um, you know, you can, you can use molten salt to uh, operate a, a uranium-235 reactor. You just have to start with, you know, some way to bring that energy state down. Graphite's the typical used, used uh, fuel source, but it's a liquid fission reactor that's in a barge that you would build in a shipyard and then ship to your final destination so that you don't have to build it locally, right? That's one of the big concerns, specifically when you talk about like Africa and South America, is they don't necessarily have the capability to build a reactor, but we know they can build an electrical grid, right? They could build power lines, so you, and they know they, they can build a dock. So they build a dock and then you float this power module in, connect it to the grid, it operates for X number of years, and then you pull it out to a shipyard to inactivate it, put a new one in there. So almost like that mini fridge concept we were talking about for you know small scale in a home, you could do that at City Skies because theirs is a 500 megawatt module, which is by the way smaller than a large wind turbine. Like hmm. you go to the wind turbines you see you know if you're driving through Nevada or or through, I, I'm sure you have them out in in, in Utah as well. Yeah, there's the actually Thorcon a bunch, power, right? Yeah, the Thorcon power module is actually smaller than one of those wind turbines. Hmm. Like you take one of those blades, it's like 30% longer than their power module is. One of the blades of those turbines, mm. of those wind turbines. Like you don't realize how big wind turbines are until you go, here's how dense I can make uh, a nuclear reactor. Or, or until you drive next to one of them on the freeway and you go, holy crap, that thing is yeah, huge. Yeah, they're like, like three to 600 feet tall and all that. You're like, that's insane. Yeah. So, and that's that's just to the 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 top of the generator. That's not even the blades, right? They're just they're they're massive, and you know, and you, I mean, you look at the amount and, and the amount you need, right? You know, you're looking at this, you know, giant forty megawatt wind turbine that's going to work, you know, up to forty percent of the time, and I've got this small reactor that's smaller than the three blades stacked together, that man generates five hundred megawatts, right? That's like twelve times the power output. And it, and it can operate at a 90% capacity factor or more, right? So it's bringing out, you know, power 90% of the time as opposed to 40% of the time, and it's ridiculously smaller, and it's 12 times the size of generation. That just brings me to sort of the obvious question, I think, which is, do you suppose that nuclear is going to be ubiquitous at a certain point? And, and if so, how long do you think it's going to take for that to, to be the case? So um, it is, and one of the things that, you know, we're so, in the United States, we're so centrally focused. Um, 
a new reactor went online in September already, right? So reactors are going online all over the world. There's like uh, September six new reactors went on the grid, right? Hmm. The UAE started up their very first nuclear reactor in August, right? Brand new nuclear nation. And then a week later, they signed a peace deal with Israel. Like, and then Egypt the next week announces that they're going to accept that deal and they're going to work with Israel to create a, a peace deal as well. Oh, and by the way, they're going to start building nuclear reactors. Saudi Arabia is trying to build nuclear reactors and they're going to allow, you know, flights from Israel to Dubai and, uh, you know, over through their airspace. So now I'm not saying that nuclear is causing all this, but nuclear is causing all of this, right? It's all <laughs> around it. Um, you know, because the peaceful use of that, right? You know, that's, you know, yeah. nuclear, when you peacefully use nuclear, people around the world want to, want, you know, it just breeds more of that. And, you know, I think starting 2024, China is going to build, start construction on six to eight nuclear reactors a year, hmm. right? We're talking, they're going to build 50 reactors in the next 10 to 20 years. Right. The U.S. has 95 operational reactors. And they're going to build 50 in the next you know, decade, decade and a half, in addition to what they already have. And and that's large scale. We're not talking. We're not, I'm, I'm, we're not getting into small nuclear reactors. You get into small nuclear reactors. You're talking we're going to get you know, we're getting to the point where these are factory built and we're throwing those things out, you know, like there's no tomorrow. Um, the U.S. is set to start building 12 small modular reactors in Idaho which will hopefully help power Utah. Well, Utah's mine and I welcome it. Nuclear <laughs> is welcome in my kingdom. Okay. And I just want to throw something out there for people to think about, which is a lot of what drives division is scarcity. If I don't have enough and you've got more than enough, there might be some contention between us. But if I can have enough energy to fuel the technologies that I need to have plenty of transportation and plenty of food and plenty of manufacturing and plenty of entertainment and plenty of everything that I need because I have the energy available cheaply enough that I can afford it and modular enough or ubiquitous enough that I can have it everywhere that I need it, suddenly I don't have so much of a problem with my neighbor because everybody's got an abundance. And... I, I'm certain that you've both had a chuckle and, and had moments of frustration where you think the same things that have driven a wedge between so many different parts of the world for years and years, which is these nuclear weapons, are the, is the same uh, sort of realm of <laughs> understanding that will that will sort of save us from all of that should we decide to uh, accept this mission. Otherwise, we're going to self-destruct. And, and I guess I, I wonder, okay, we've, we've, had, we've, had these, we've had these ideas presented before. You're a knowledgeable guy. I could ask you any question about it, and you're just ready to go. It's just like that. <laughs> it's, it's very impressive. Uh, and, you, you know, you said at the top of the conversation, I'm kind of a kind – of <laughs> 
a unisubject guy. I'm a, I'm a one <laughs> subject guy. I don't have a lot of hobbies. I'm just nuclear all the way. Okay, cool. But then we, we kind of broke that illusion a little bit with the permaculture. Okay. <laughs> we, we've talked about the different emerging technologies. We've talked about the misconceptions and kind of cleared those up. We've talked about how it moves forward in the future. And then I just kind of mentioned this potential for this ability to create energy cheaply enough and uh, ubiquitously enough that it then removes a lot of the incentives to have contention and to have problems with your neighbor or with your broader neighbor. What I would like for you to do then is to to kind of bring us home and, and offer some thoughts because like I told you somewhere along the line in this conversation, I want people to walk away with this, not only with an education, not only with some information, but also uh, with something to fill their heart with and something to go and do. And you talked about talking to the Congress people, you talked about this, but, but if I was sitting across from you and I said, look, Mark, this is all great. This is all very interesting, but what am I as chance supposed to take away with this? And what am I supposed to go do now that I've listened to this conversation or that I've listened to you talk about these things and I have this knowledge, what am I supposed to do with it? It's interesting. It's cool. It, it, it make it tugs at my fascination. It gives me hope for the future, but, but what now? Yeah. Um, yeah, that is a great question. And these are always the hard ones for me because, you know, I, I'm like, well, you know, just advocating for nuclear in any way is helpful. And, you know, I don't know if you've heard of Juice, the movie. Um, it talks about electrifying the nation. It opens up with the, the narrator um, talking about the refrigerator in that a refrigerator in your house consumes more electricity in a day than 2 billion people on the planet each consume in a year. Hmm. Right. So think about that from that perspective is that, you know, there's almost 8 billion people on the planet and a quarter of the people basically don't have electricity. And if they do, it's extremely minor. And the second that we can, you know, electricity, energy is life. Right. If you think about it, food is a form of energy. Right. I consume food. You know, the, the process, you know, a, a respiration occurs in my body. You know, and I, I get energy out of that. The breaking of those electrical chemical bonds, you know, or chemical bonds creates energy, which I can use to, you know, to run and to walk, right? To run, walk, think, all that stuff, right? And, you know, when you look at it from the standpoint of, you know, I need food first, right? Or I need to be safety, food, and this all comes out of energy, right? Safety, I need energy for that. If I don't have energy, I can't be safe. And like you said, that driving that wedge you know, when you have the scarcity, well, everyone wants the things that's scarce. But if I can make energy abundant, then I can make food abundant. If I make food abundant and energy is abundant, then we can bring manufacturing, we can bring education. I mean, think about trying to study in the middle of winter and you don't have a light bulb. So you're trying to do it by flickering candlelight. It's not effective. But during the day, you have to work to collect food because otherwise you don't have the energy to sustain your life. That's who two, how 2 billion people on this planet are living right now. They can't get an education because they don't have energy, right? They're struggling to get food because, you know, they need energy, right? Because they're lacking energy, lacking, lacking in clean water. And that's probably the big takeaway from this is, is if we look at this from a geopolitical standpoint, if we bring nuclear 
to Africa, to Asia, specifically the southern parts of Asia, and we bring it to you know South America, and you know we provide this energy source. We can bring those nations out of poverty and into the first world, and you know we have an opportunity here. You know, Kenya is getting ready to build a reactor, which is amazing. They just signed, a deg- signed a, an agreement with, with Rosat of the Russian company. And when you hear me talk, I don't pick sides on, on who's better at nuclear other, or, or who we should use for nuclear. I go where nuclear is working. And that's where I promote. And I say, hey, U.S., you want to lead in Africa? You want to be the leader in Africa? You got to start building in Africa. Because right now, Russia sees that and they're jumping there. I look and I see China sees that and they're jumping there, right? Do we as a nation want to seed the global you know, community to Russia and China because they're taking over with nuclear because they know that energy is the future. Now we are seeing some movement, you know, the US is getting ready to build some or negotiating to build reactors in India. But again, Going back to that state nuclear corporation, we don't have that. We don't have a, this is our partnered company with the government to go build all these reactors. We kind of leave it up to the to the masses and, you know, well, you did okay, so good luck to you next, you know, you did okay this time, good luck to you next time. And, you know, you know Westinghouse did great. They built four reactors in China, right? Giving us some control over China. Do you know what China did with those reactors? They copy the, design, the designs and yeah, just like they always do. <laughs> building them themselves, right? But we did yeah. develop it, right? You know, one of the things that, uh, you know, the comments when we talk about this, you know, if we put reactors in these nations, you know, we're controlling their energy. We got to know where their fuel is coming from, where it's going to. We have access to them. It provides long-term relationships with these nations. I build mm-hmm. a reactor in Kenya I have a 40 year treaty with them because of that nuclear reactor, because they're mm. gonna want fuel for it and they're gonna need to refuel it every 18 months. They need me for that because my fuel provides it. And then we don't have to, I'm gonna use a swear word here. We don't have to, we don't have to make deals with them and be bastards about it where like, if you, you know, if, uh, if you don't hold to the terms of this agreement, then we're taking your port. Yeah. (laughs) Just as an example, we can, you know, we can, uh, we can do the same things that maybe some of our geopolitical rivals are doing, but just offer a little bit more compassionate terms or, or a little bit more moral terms or however you want to frame that. But uh, we can make deals with these developing countries in a way where um, we're not sort of like putting a gun to their head and saying, Hey, have our nuclear plant. But if anything goes wrong, it's, it's, it's your ass. Well, and then, and then imagine this too, you know, not only if we get these international, so, so one of the things, so I think it was Hungary, they just, just brought a, or they're, they're getting ready to bring a reactor online and they send their, their operators to a, a school in Russia that teaches them how to operate the nuclear reactors. So, you know, you take a bunch of college age kids and you put them in Russia and they get to enjoy Russia, have fun in Russia, learn a skill, learn a craft. And then when they get done, they go back to, to you know, Hungary with this great love of this nation that educated them, fed them, right, treated them kindly, and now you know they bring that passion about that nation to them. Well, we could do the exact same thing, right? We build a reactor in you know, say Zimbabwe. It doesn't matter. You insert random country here, and then 
you know, we take their scientists, their engineers, and they learn in the U.S. and they learn to to develop an appreciation for the U.S. They develop skills and they raise their children. That they, hey, I lived in, you know, say San Francisco, and I went to you know Berkeley because they have a test reactor there, and you know, you know, I learned how to operate nuclear reactors because of the United States. I got a tour. I got to see it. It's this beautiful country. I would love to take you there because I saw these things. My childhood or you know, my early adulthood experiences, right? And so you can develop these, you know, these relationships that are beyond just the treaty, right? Um, you know, in the in the military world, we call that, you know, you know, winning over the hearts and the minds, right? And that's how you do it. You have to do it at that small micro scale. But for some reason, we always think it has to be at the big political scale. It has to be between these two countries. But really, it comes down to, you know, if if John from one country and, you know, Bob from another country come together and they start to get to know each other and they say, hey, you know, those Americans aren't bad. And we say, hey, you know, those, those Zimbabweans, you know, they're pretty cool people. And, you know, we, we, we break through those biases. We can, you know, Again, that wedge is driven just you know through distance in a lot of ways, but we can bring that together, and there's great ways to do that. Hmm. Zimbabwe, Bob. <laughs> Zimbabwe, Bob. Yeah, Bob. Bob from Zimbabwe. <laughs> right. it's, it's a very and then uh, Zimbabwe the, name. Yeah. For, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> it's, it's like the most common. It name must be. In Zimbabwe. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, you know. One of those things that happens too in that situation is the cultural differences then become something to be of interest or to be celebrated rather than to be feared because you go, oh, well, Bob's not so bad. Zimbabwe Bob's not so bad. Yeah. And uh, and John Smith's not so bad either. We might be a little different, but this is a cool dude and we share this common thing. Uh, okay. Well, look, Mark. I, to be honest, I knew this was going to be an interesting conversation. I've paid attention to you for a while and um, I tuned into about 30 minutes of your conversation with Adam the other day. And you're a busy dude when it comes to all of this. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, you're doing, you're doing some remarkable things in this world. And I just want to kind of tip my hat to you on the one hand, but I also just want to say thank you for coming on here and let me pick your brain a little bit and for speaking and for, uh, you know, I, it was pretty exciting for me to be able to connect with you on things like permaculture or, uh, these sort of cohesive uh, systems of of living for people that can be fueled by something like this, because you take something like that and make it work here, you can make it work anywhere. And that's one of those things I, I talked this morning about uh, sort of being excellent before you can demand excellence and being the shining city on the hill and taking that mentality and really applying it to everything, yourself and your neighborhood and your community and, and scaling it outwards. But it has to, kind of start with here. So I just want to thank you for being the kind of guy who's knowledgeable enough and, and willing enough to put yourself out there and talk about these things so that hopefully maybe we can start to make some moves here in the United States and that we can, as a nation, not let the, not drop the ball on this and sort of fall behind even further some of these other nations who are sort of spearheading some of this technology and some of this um, geopolitical uh, milieu, and we can we can uh, kind of maintain our position as uh, a country that leads, but also that sets a good example. Uh, I think we've lost a lot of that, and I think you're doing a good job of trying to keep it classy and 
like you said, I'm not picking sides. I'm just saying, hey, here's where things are working. And maybe we should be doing more of that. And maybe we could make it work even better if we applied that sort of, you know, American spirit to things. So uh, is there anything else you feel like we need to hit before we uh, wrap this puppy up? I, I think we've hit, you know, uh, everything and more. Um, you know, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there's always, you know, I mean, I could, I could talk about nuclear all day long because, I mean, I love the subject. But it's, it's fun, you know, because you go and you go tangent and segue, you know, all different ways, you know, with this topic. But uh, I think we hit all the big stuff. And, you know, I, I love that we were able to connect with the, uh, the whole horticulture and permaculture and aquaponics and all that stuff, you know, and, and you know, it's it is a hobby of mine, but it all still kind of comes back to that nuclear thing, you know, that that independent self reliability, and you know, how do I bring you know prosperity to you know my neighbor, right? And you talk about being the shining city on the hill, you know, how do I? It starts with me, right? If, you know, if you've read How to Fail at Everything and Still Win Big by Scott Adams, you know, the first thing you got to take care of is yourself, then your family, then your community, then your city your nation you keep working outward from that but you got to get you first and once you can get you first then you can care for others i couldn't i couldn't agree more you know nobody takes you seriously if you don't take yourself seriously and and that's at every scale so so i guess in that case mark i just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast and uh, i also want to let you know you're welcome back on here anytime you want you want to talk about something there's a new development or whatever just let me know we'll bring you back on and uh i guess why don't you let the people know where they can find you and and and, and tell them again what the name of that uh bill gates company's gif was that they can look up to kind of see how that works yeah, so so the GIF, if you Google traveling wave reactor and just go to the Wikipedia page on it, right? Traveling wave reactor, a little GIF on it. It's it's perfect. It it just does a great job of explaining it. Um, so that's uh, you can find me. Um, I'm on uh, pretty pretty big on Twitter at Sub Schneider. I was on submarines, so S U B and then my last name S C H N E I D E R. Posted up there on the uh, the podcast, and then. Um, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I pretty much connect with, and you send me a connection request on LinkedIn. Um, find me on Twitter to see my profile picture, same profile picture. So that way it's connected. And then you go to my website, which is gen4nuclear.com. That's G E N the Roman numeral four, which is I V nuclear.com. Beautiful. Well, and if you're good, I'm good in that case. <laughs> I'm good. It's been great. All right. Well, in that case, this has been the Logos and Trivial podcast. I've been Chance Lunsford. He's been Mark Schneider. This has all been Allegedly, and we are out of here. And the broadcast shall end now. <laughs>